Isaiah chapter 2. Last week we uh, dove into Isaiah chapter 1, and I told you, uh, as is my custom, that I like to have a stand and read, but uh, in the book of Isaiah, sometimes we're going to take two, three, four chapters at a time, and it just would take a lot of time to stand and read. So we're not going to do that this morning. Uh, but if you're in Isaiah chapter 2, we're going to cover all of chapter 2, all of chapter 3, and the first verse of chapter 4. That's what we're going to cover this morning in a sermon titled, Yahweh Alone. Yahweh Alone. And I want to um, just ask you a question as we start this morning. If someone comes up to you, as probably has happened, and says, I have some good news and I have some bad news. Which do you want to hear first? How many of you would say bad news? I want to hear the bad news first. Anybody opposite want to hear the good news first? A few of you. Okay, a few of you would like to hear the good news first. I thought that might be the case, that we were mostly uh, bad news first. Uh, here's a question. Can there be good news without bad news? Can there be good news without bad news? That's a very interesting question to think about, and it's going to come up in today's passage when we think about good news and bad news uh, in the light of what Isaiah has to say to the people of Judah and Jerusalem 2,700 years ago in the land of Israel. So, let's pray and let's get started. Father, we thank you that your word um, does not return void, uh, that you um, have a purpose and a pleasure to do with your word what you will. And so this morning we want to ask that you would do something powerful with your word this morning. Um, not because uh, I am saying it or because we're in this place, but because you are here and you want to be heard and we need to hear from you. So make your word effective in hearts and lives. Lord, some of us are tired. Help us to, um, to be alert and awake to hear um, some of the most important words we could ever hear. Uh, God, help uh, all the opportunities that we have today for, to hear from your word in the education hour and our kids and, and their opportunities. Lord, we ask that your word would be clear and that we would understand it and that we would change um, our lives because of what we've heard. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, we are in the book of Isaiah. Um, we just started this series and we have a long way to go. So we are looking forward to um, getting through um, this in various chunks. Some of your favorite passages are in Isaiah, no doubt. Um, some well, very well-known Christmas passages are in Isaiah, right? And some prophecies. Um, there are some fantastic uh, passages about the Messiah, the Savior to come, uh, specifically in Isaiah 53. Uh, but here at the outset, in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, Isaiah is basically introducing um, what he's going to talk about the rest of the book. So in the first five chapters... Basically, the whole book is summarized in the first five chapters. Most, if not all, of the main themes are touched on here at the beginning. And what um, many scholars think is that uh, Isaiah would speak his prophecies um, in public and in the palace and in the temple courts. And oftentimes, um, his disciples or scribes would write things down. Perhaps he also would write his own words down. And when the book of Isaiah was compiled, as we'll see later, there are things out of chronological order. And so it seems that the book was intentionally put together, uh, much like um, the rest of the Bible, intentionally put in order. And so last week, um, we talked about the sins of Judah and Jerusalem and the separation that had come between Yahweh, the God of Israel, and his people. 
And we saw um, that he was going to bring about judgment um, on sin because God is holy. He is the Holy One of Israel. But through that judgment and because of that judgment, God is also going to bring about a remnant who repent. And so there's this view of the here and now in the book of Isaiah, and there's almost always a view to the future. And so Pastor Ron, when he introduced the book several weeks ago, uh, put a picture of some mountains up on the screen and um, talked about uh, from a distance, uh, just saying there are mountains. Uh, But when you get closer, you actually see that there's a range, perhaps. Uh, There are peaks and valleys before you can actually get up to the mountains. This is uh, what we use to illustrate prophecy. So that Isaiah speaks of his own day. Isaiah speaks of um, years to come, things that are not too far off. And then Isaiah talks about distant things. And, and so this is where things get confusing, right? This is where things get interesting. And so today we want to take note of what is Isaiah referring to? What is he talking about and when is he referring to? We're not always going to have clear answers to those things, but it's good to keep that in mind as we read through the book of Isaiah. As we look at chapter 2 today, um, it is not a lot of good news. Praise the Lord, it's front-loaded. So you that like good news at the beginning, this is your day because we have it front-loaded. Things get pretty bad right after this. Let's take a look at Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law. For in the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. As we read those words, you should immediately say, oh, yes, (laughs) that is what we're longing for. That is what we're longing for, rather than what we see whenever we turn the news on or open up our news feed on our phone, right? There are not swords being turned into plowshares. There are swords being used for what swords are supposed to be used for all around our world. This is not the case. There is not peace throughout the earth. Uh, Zion is not lifted up and people streaming to it to hear from the Lord. This is specifically a future designation in the latter days. In the latter days. It's very interesting. Verses 2 through 4 are almost identical to Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. So if you want to look at that later, it is almost identical. And Micah and Isaiah probably served as prophets around the same time under the same kings. So scholars like to bat it around like a volleyball, who was first and who borrowed from whom. Perhaps it was a common phrase that they both used. Whatever the case... Uh, Micah and Isaiah both speak of this day to come. They both are looking forward to the day when the Lord reigns in Zion and when peace reigns on the earth. 
It's very interesting that the prophet Joel actually says the opposite of what Isaiah and Micah say. Isaiah and Micah say the swords in the plowshares and spears in the pruning hooks, taking weapons and turning them into tools for agriculture. Joel, in speaking in a different context, speaks of taking tools for agriculture and using them as weapons. See, this is why when we're reading the prophets, we need to do our best to figure out when they're talking about what they're talking about. And it is this future look that Isaiah has that we want to look at this morning. So verses 1 through 5 in your notes are the Jerusalem to come. The Jerusalem to come. And this theme pervades Scripture. And of course it ends in Revelation 21 and 22 when the Apostle John sees the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven to earth. And so we have a good connection between what's happening here in chapter 2 and what's happening at the end of the book of Revelation. We have uh, the mountain. The mountain of the house of Yahweh. Uh, just remember, if you weren't here last week, you're looking at your Bible and you're like, I do not see Yahweh in there. Uh, if you see Lord in all caps, Lord in all caps, that Hebrew word is Yahweh, the covenant name of God. If you see Lord, see again, that's confusing because that's all caps. But if you see Lord, that's not all caps. It's referring to a title, Lord, Adonai, Master, This is a name. Yahweh is a name. And so I'm going to try my best to say that when I see it in the text so that we understand that it is the name of God, the name that God revealed to his covenant people. And what did Isaiah see? Isaiah saw a vision that in the future, the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains. The question here now becomes, is this literal? Are we we to see a growth of a mountain that becomes taller than Everest, taller than... Whitney, taller than Denali, taller than all of these mountains. Um, I think there's a whole lot of symbolism here that I don't think necessarily discounts the possibility of this being um, literally occurring. But what happened in the ancient world and still happens today in some cultures is where do the gods reside? They, they reside in the mountains, right? Mount Olympus. Right? We're, we're, in fact, we're, we're, the Olympics are happening right now and the Olympics were around Mount Olympus to please Zeus who lived on top of the mountains. There are other mountains throughout cultures where the gods were thought to dwell and to live because it is high, it is lofty, it is lifted up, it is above the common folk. I think that what Isaiah, and of course the Lord who is telling Isaiah what to say, who is inspiring his word, is that the mountain of the Lord will overshadow Mount Olympus. The mountain of the Lord will overshadow all other mountains. Asgard has nothing on Zion. And so that the mountain of the Lord would rise up highest means that it is the most prominent. And it means that the God who dwells on top of this mountain trumps all other gods. So what Isaiah is saying is Yahweh, our God, is Yahweh alone. He is the true God. He is high and lifted up above all the hills. Now watch this. The picture is a mountain lifted up, right? So the mountain is growing. It's big. It's higher than all the other ones. Now look at the next phrase in the end of verse 2. And all the nations shall, what's the next word? Flow to it. What's that, what's that a picture of? A river, a stream going uh, hmm. This is not an optical illusion. This is a, a purposeful use of something that is not natural. Water does not flow 
up mountains. It comes down mountains. The picture is of people streaming, flowing like a river to God. In fact, it's almost like magnetic. Here is God on top of the mountain. And he's so magnetic that the waters, the peoples, are coming up to him. Why are they coming to him? Well, look at verse 3. They tell us, let's go to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways. See, this is not the case today, right? This is not the case that most people say, yes, we want to hear from God. Please, God, tell us all that we need to know. We want to hear from you. Those that, that think that are in the minority. But this speaks of a day when the nations will flow to hear from the Lord. And not only that, but they want to walk in his paths. This is a picture used throughout scripture, right? To walk in the paths of the Lord. Okay, uh, Psalm 119 tells us that God's word is a light and a lamp so that we can see where we are going. Here the people want to come and hear from God. Notice they want to hear from God himself, that he may teach us his ways. They're not there to hear a great preacher. They're not there to hear from a great prophet. They want it straight from the mouth of God. Straight from the mouth of God. This is what they want to see. And so Isaiah tells us that out of Zion shall go the law, the Torah, the instruction, and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. And then they, they this picture of, of uh, Yahweh as often in Isaiah as a judge, that he's judging. Now don't think um, like robes and a, and a wig and a gavel. Okay, that, that, that might be somewhat helpful. But um, the judging d- done in the time of Israel was more than like the third branch of government. Okay, um, this was more like the king also acted as judge. And so there was more of a, a widespread power. And so this is not um, this is not Yahweh waiting for the other branches to kind of kick it over to him. Right. The Supreme Court. Um, this is Yahweh uh, judging actively between the nations. In fact, the picture is of him stopping war. It's a picture of a peacemaker who is coming in to stop the wars on earth. Wouldn't that be great? Isn't that something to look forward to? When the Lord says, stop. And the weapons are turned into agricultural tools. Now, verse 5 ends this first section. And here is Isaiah's plea to his people. Remember, the prophets are covenant enforcers. They're, They're pleading with, they're speaking to the people saying, stop violating the covenant. God has made a covenant with you. Stop breaking it. This is, what, this is what the prophets did. This is what they were around for. They kept pointing the people back to the covenant. And in verse 5, Isaiah says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of Yahweh. Now, immediately some of your um, cross-reference synapses started firing. And some of you thought of First John. Let's walk in the light as he is in the light. Um, that very likely John is borrowing this imagery to walk in the light, meaning to stop walking in darkness. And so that, that God gives light, and if we walk with him in the light that he provides, then now we can see where we're going. How foolish and stupid it is to walk in the darkness. Right? Many of us have, have um, done this. If you have or had little kids or little brothers or sisters, um, and perhaps... Every once in a while, they didn't put their, all their toys away. And you're walking in the dark. What happens? These toys find the bottom of your feet. 
They, they seek out the bottom of your feet and you kick them or you step on them. Legos are particularly brutal, right? And, and right, you're walking in the darkness. You can't see where you're going. The picture here is Isaiah pleading with the people, stop, stop walking in darkness. Come, let's walk in the light of Yahweh. That's the invitation. The invitation is come. And that's where the good news ends. <laughs> because now he turns to the bad news. And I think that good news and bad news kind of work interchangeably. So um, if I'm sharing the gospel with somebody, gospel means good news. <laughs> if I'm sharing the good news, the gospel with somebody, um, a lot of times, especially in our culture, I need to convince them that there's bad news so that they can see why the good news is any good. Um, we're trained not to think of ourselves as bad. There's nothing wrong with us. Um, we're, 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 this is the way we are. I'm perfect the way I am. Um, this is how I'm supposed to be. And so you can't tell me that anything's wrong. Um, I'm not bad. I may have had some bad influences in my life, but I'm not bad. I'm not a bad person. I, I'm, I'm pr- pretty good. Uh, oftentimes we have to do the work of convincing people of the bad news before we can even get to the good news. Now, Isaiah um, is going to harp on the bad news quite a bit, I think because the people of Israel didn't think it was bad And so they weren't attracted to the good news that he had to offer. They thought that what they were doing was good for them and right and best. So now Isaiah turns in verse 6 to tell them more of what they're doing that is wrong. And this is your next point in your notes. The day of Yahweh alone. The day of Yahweh alone. The promise is of a day. Isaiah talks to God, and he says that you've rejected your people. You've rejected the house of Jacob, the house of Jacob that he just pled with to walk in the light of the Lord. And he says that influences have come in and snuck in to God's people, and they're now practicing the religions and the rituals of the peoples around them that they weren't supposed to do. Do you remember this in the story of the scriptures? Um, God gathers his people on the plains of Moab. They're about to cross the Jordan River into the promised land. They've been waiting 40 years These are all children of those that have died in the wilderness. And Moses stands there and gives them the law again. The second law, Deuteronomy, second law. He gives them the law again. And as they're going in, he is specific. Wipe out the people in the land, because if you don't, they will stick around and they will get into you. They will get into your practices and your ways and your beliefs. And it happened exactly like Moses said. There were good times to be sure. Good times. But there were many bad times. And the bad times were because the children of Israel decided not to walk in the light of Yahweh. They decided to walk in the ways of the people around them. I like the way that the Philistines worship their God. I think that the Ammonites have a really cool God and, you know, might just kind of add them to my little pantheon. Yahweh's cool sometimes, but this God does really good for my crops. And I'm really, this is what happened. They began to acquire the beliefs Um, Look at verse 6. Things from the east of fortune tellers like the Philistines who were on their west. And then he begins to describe something that's very interesting because often in the time of Isaiah, Judah and Israel before it was destroyed were actually doing pretty well. They were very well off. Um, King Uzziah, uh, who we find out in chapter 6, is uh, at the end of his reign when Isaiah starts his ministry. Things are booming. There is a great economy. They are making Judah great again. And the things are working well, and everyone has wealth and prosperity. And look at that in verse 7. Their land is filled with silver 
and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses and there is no end to their chariots. Great. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for providing for our needs. You know, there's something very interesting in that. They have horses and chariots. Not bad things. Good uh, animals and tools that God has given for all kinds of different uses. But you know what Psalm 20 verse 7 says? Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But, can you finish it? We trust in the name of Yahweh our God. We don't trust in chariots and horses. And so, in the book of Deuteronomy, long before, hundreds of years before Israel ever had a king, God laid out rules for that king. This king is not to proliferate wives. He's not to have a lot of wives. He is not to go down to Egypt and get horses. He's not to stock up on all these horses. He's not to stock up on wealth. This is an indictment of of King Solomon, um, assuredly. Uh, But this is exactly what Moses said. Don't stock up on those things because he knew, not that those things were wrong, but that when Israel had prosperity, that Israel would trust in its prosperity, which is what you and I do, right? Things are good when we have enough and things are really bad when we don't. And that's oversimplifying the problem, but often that's how we feel. Um, The children of Israel have been warned again and again and again to not trust in their stuff, to not trust in their things. Listen to Deuteronomy 6, after the famous passage about parents and children, the Shema. And when Yahweh your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, when you eat and are full. This is a good thing. Then take care lest you forget Yahweh, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is Yahweh your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve. And by His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For Yahweh your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of Yahweh your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. The Israelites knew this. They'd had hundreds of years of warnings. Which is, which just makes me think we've had even more hundreds of years of warnings. The warnings are here. It is not a mystery what happens when we turn our back on the Lord. When we trust in our riches and our wealth. The Bible has lots to say about that. Psalm 49 is something you should go and read later on this afternoon. Psalm 49. What are you trusting in? Your 401k can't save you. Some of you are like, yeah, I know. Some of you are like, no, my 401k is doing okay. It can't save you. It can't save you. If you think it will, you've not learned from history very well. Inheriting your parents' estate won't save you. Winning the lottery won't save you. It won't. Signing a max contract won't save you. None of those things are worth trusting in. Proverbs eleven twenty eight says, Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. What is necessary? Righteousness. Better is he who is righteous and has little than the unrighteous who has much. 
Jesus told the rich young man who came up to him, said, okay, great. You know, you've kept the law. Fantastic. Sell all you have and come follow me. Rich young man turns away sad because he had much wealth. And he wasn't willing to let it go. He wasn't willing to let go. And then the rich young man walks away and Jesus turns to his disciples and his disciples are amazed because they equated riches with success. Prosperity with faithfulness. God's blessing with that prosperity. And what they just saw was Jesus asked this man to give up the blessing. And so they're amazed. The, the Mark chapter 10 says they're amazed. And who can be saved? Because Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Which if you're wondering, you can't get a camel through the eye of a needle. <laughs> so it's a good thing the disciples thought that's impossible. And then Jesus says these words, with God all things are possible. With God all things are possible. But you'll note that we tend to relate wealth to success as well. Don't we? It is a temptation for us to go, they're wealthy, they're successful, they're good, they're blessed, that, that settles it. See, I mean, really all we have to do is, is look in the news and see that, that is not the case, right? Who, who, who generally are the people that are oppressing others? Historically, mostly, the rich, the wealthy, the powerful. The Bible says lots about this. Jesus says that wealth introduces an extra roadblock to the kingdom of God. Now, he does not say that wealth is wrong or sinful. Let's just be very clear about that. But there is a great temptation in wealth. And Satan loves to tempt us because he puts that carrot out in front of us. If we just get that better job, if we just get that raise, if we just get that surprise amount of money, then my life will be good and I'll be satisfied and content. And then I'll trust God because I don't have anything to worry about. It's hard to trust God when I've got stuff to worry about. Maybe, maybe... God puts us through difficult times so that we'll trust him more? Maybe? Perhaps? Paul said something, had something to say about this. He said in 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10, those who desire, notice that, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. <laughs> Man, back off, Paul. Holy smokes. Calm down. He doesn't. Verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. The root. It's the root of all kinds of evil, right? One root, all kinds of branches, all kinds of evil come from the love of money. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. See, the love of money is insidious. It is dark. And it is dangerous. Paul says it's like, it's like walking off the path and stabbing yourself. Because you're pursuing money and wealth and you're plunging yourself into destruction, piercing yourself with many pangs. The author of Hebrews said, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The, the, the promise is, if God is with you, you're good, you're set. This is important for us to consider because the people of Israel in Isaiah chapter 2 thought they had it made because life was good. Life was good. Well, look at verse 8. Their land in, in verse 7 was filled with money and horses and chariots. Verse 8, it's also filled with idols. Filled with idols. 
Watch this. These people, they bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. This is a theme throughout the prophets. Isaiah gets back to this again and again and again. Notice again the stupidity of making something with your own hands and then worshiping that. Right? That's dumb. <laughs> that does not make any sense. I found, a, I found a tree out in the forest and I look, I carved it and whittled it. And, oh, God. What? How does that, how does that make any sense at all? It does not. You cannot bow down to the things that you have made and think that this thing will save you. You made it. You made it. Uh, verse 9 says that man is brought low. And there's this picture throughout Isaiah of, of the, the, the lowness of, of sin and judgment. And then, opposite that, the loftiness of God who is holy and righteous and good and kind. And he is lifted up. Well, we see that in verse 10 and 11 that these prideful men, these haughty looks, they're brought low. They're, in fact, they're, they're in the dust, hiding from the terror of Yahweh, which brings us the picture in Revelation. Remember? Running to the caves and the rocks. Fall on us because the Lord's coming in judgment. I would rather be crushed by a rock than have the God of the universe judge me. Uh, Revelation borrows from this imagery. Look at verse 11. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low. The lofty, that means high, the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And Yahweh alone will be exalted in that day. What is God's judgment going to bring about? It's going to bring about, without a shadow of a doubt, the truth of His holiness and man's sin. That's what judgment does. Judgment brings about the holiness of God judging the sinfulness of man. And when all is made clear, there's no there's no um, comparison. It's not even close. Here is a holy, righteous, sinless God who has the right and the prerogative to judge sinful rebels. High and low. High and low. Verse 12 tells us that this God has a day. And I want you to notice the phrase here. We're going to see this throughout the scripture uh, in Isaiah. For Yahweh of hosts has a day. Hosts um, means armies. It's a military term. So this, this, this pictures God as a general leading his armies, which means God is powerful. For Yahweh of hosts has a day. And we'll start to see this in that day, in that day, in the day. And we'll see this actually throughout the rest of scripture. Um, Hebrews borrows this when it tells us to go to church. It tells us to gather together to encourage one another as we see the day approaching. Um, oftentimes in the Testament it's called the day of the Lord, the day of Christ Jesus. Or sometimes it's called the day, judgment day. This is the day that is spoken of here. For Yahweh of hosts has a day against, and it starts to say against all these things, against all these things, against all these things. Yahweh is going to come down. When he judges, he is going to judge against those things that have lifted themselves up against him. And verse 17 Again, we see that the humbling of haughtiness of men, the lofty pride of men should be brought low. And once again, as if one time wasn't enough, Yahweh alone will be exalted in that day. It will be very clear on that day, on the day of judgment, who is in charge. We will be put in our rightful places. Verse 20, In that day mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship. 
There's that theme again. To the moles and to the bats to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs. Here's the picture. The picture is toss the idols, run, hide. Run and hide. Where? In the holes in the ground. Who lives in the holes in the ground? Moles and bats, unclean animals, disgusting animals. The Jews were not allowed to touch these animals. To be present with those animals makes one unclean. That is not something they wanted to consider. In verse 21, they're going to enter the caverns of the rocks, the clefts of the cliffs, from before the terror of Yahweh and from the splendor of his majesty. It's kind of like, um, for those of you that have seen uh, the Lord of the Rings movies, it's kind of like when um, Frodo offers Galadriel the ring. Did you guys remember that? She's the, the elven uh, queen. In, in the forest, and Frodo says, take it. And she goes, Wah! it turns into that crazy thing, and her like, hair is blowing back, and she's like, and speaking in this crazy voice. Right? Um, it's, like, it's like that. It's like when, when the queen is completely revealed, people just, okay, oh, wow, okay, get away. Right? That's, that's what happens when an angel shows up in the Bible. Right? An angel, angels don't show up, and people go, hey, what's up? Right? They fall on their face. I mean, I love that picture, right? Fall on your face. Fall on your face. That would hurt. When God shows up in all of his splendor and glory, you don't like think about anything, you just get on the ground. In fact, this picture here makes us think like you want to get into the ground, like underground, to get away, because it is so terrifyingly holy to be in the presence of God. Which, interestingly, we're going to get to see in a few weeks when Isaiah comes into the presence of the king. So here are these people terrified, trying to get away, and verse 22, end of chapter 2, Isaiah says, Stop regarding man. In whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Now this is not to, to say that there's no dignity in human beings because we're made in the image of God. The Bible is very clear that we are separate from the animals, from all of creation, because God made us special in his image. However, notice the allusion to Genesis 2-7. Remember the, the story of creation? God forms man out of the dust of the earth, and then what's he do? He breathes into his nostrils, the breath of life. Look at verse 22. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? The picture is this. The only reason that man has breath in his nostrils is because God breathed the breath into him. So, so man is a, is a derivative being. We are, we are contingent. God says, heart stop, your heart stops. <laughs> um, we, we take every breath by the grace of of God. And the picture is, why would you trust in a man who at one minute is standing up and the next minute is flat on his face because he had a heart attack? Why would you put your trust in a man who's like, the, the picture is breath, right? And so oftentimes the Bible uses vapor, right? I grew up in Southern California, and so some of, my wife grew up in New Hampshire where it like gets, you know, cold. <laughs> um, so I remember being a kid, and when it, in the wintertime, you know, I'd get out in the morning and be like, oh my goodness! And you're like, there he is! I see! I saw my breath! I saw my breath! I'd go in and tell my dad I could see my breath, right? All this effort just to see, and then it's gone. And that's the picture here. Why would you put your trust in a man who's in one, in one second is gone? Why would you do that? Stop it! That's, he's not worth it. And that moves us to chapter 3, and, and, and um, Isaiah kind of keeps that theme of talking about the leaders. So in the first half of chapter 3, he focuses on the leadership um, in the land of Judah. And he really does not have anything good to say about them at all. And, and my point in the notes is, as the leaders go, so goes the nation. As the leaders go, so goes the nation. 
Isaiah begins to speak of the people in the land. Verse 2, the mighty man, the soldier, the judge, the prophet, the diviner, the elder, the captain of 50, the man of rank, the counselor, the skillful magician. All of these men who are in charge, what's going to happen? Well, verse 1 says God is taking away support and supply. All support of bread. God is going to judge and he's going to take away what these leaders manage, right? That's what our leaders do. They manage taxes. They manage workers. Um, they manage uh, public works. They manage all of these things. And God's going to take away all their jobs, what they have to do. He's going to take away all the opportunities for them to lead. In verse 4, I will make boys their princes. What's the picture there? The picture there is we don't go to the nursery for our leadership, right? right? We we don't look to little boys that can't feed themselves and have to have their diapers changed to lead us in any capacity whatsoever. And this is what God's judgment is. God's judgment is, you want you want leaders? I'll give you some leaders. How about these little boys? Or verse 4, how about infants? God is going to decimate the rulers of Judah. And what's that, what's that going to result in verse 5 is going to result in things that we see in our culture. In fact, in the degradation of every culture, this is what we see. The people will oppress one another. Everyone his fellow and everyone his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. Social, the social contract breaks down. Society disintegrates. And then you see verse 6, it gets so bad that a man's going to find a guy who actually has a good-looking jacket and say, that's a nice jacket, you lead us. Which is no basis for leadership, right? You're a snazzy dresser, you should lead us. Whoa, that's that's not really a good opportunity to find a leader. Praise the Lord. Um, So he begins to find anyone who can lead. And then they find this person that can lead, verse 7, in that day he says, I will not be a healer. I don't want to be the leader. Don't make me the leader. Everyone's shying away from leadership. Why? Verse 8. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen. Because their speech and their deeds are against Yahweh. They, it wasn't that they made bad economic decisions. It wasn't that the policies didn't work out well. It wasn't that the cabinets weren't stacked with technocrats and good leaders. It's that they spoke against their God. At the heart of the issue is a spiritual problem. They spoke and acted against Yahweh, defying his glorious presence. God's own people, not not the peoples around, God's own people did this. And so God must and will judge them. Look at verse 9. Again, Sodom is brought up just like last week. The look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. What does that mean? It just meant, it meant that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah had no problem displaying their sin. They didn't hide their sin behind closed doors. They flaunted their sin. And God's people are doing that. God's people are doing that in God's land that he gave them. They're flaunting their sin before God. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. This is a, a terrifying warning. When the Bible uses the word woe, it's not how we use woe. Okay? It is woe. This is not good. It's, it's oh no. Oh man, this is not good. Woe to them. Tell the righteous, verse 10, little bright spot, tell the righteous it should be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Yes, that's good. Woe to the wicked. Okay. <laughs> There's this little bright spot in there. And then more judgment. 
What is the, the judgment? The judgment of the infants are the oppressors. Women rule over them. And this is not something against women as um, lesser. It is something about uh, the culture at the time. Women were not trained to be leaders. They were not expected to be leaders. They're not allowed to be leaders. So that if the women were leaders, it meant the men had utterly failed. That the leadership had completely and utterly failed. And so the only ones who could step up and would step up were the women. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you. This talks to to us of the the importance of good leadership. Village Bible Church, please pray for the leaders of this church. We and they need your prayers. We have um, responsibilities and influence, and we want to wield those things correctly and well and for the good of God's people and for the glory of his name, not for our own pleasure. 13, verse 13, 14, and 15 accuses the leadership of, of taking it out on the poor, of abusing the poor in order to enrich themselves, grinding their face, crushing my people. This is a warning. This is a warning. In verse 16, we get to the last point today, like mother, like daughter. That that last point is like mother, like daughter. And so the picture is of Zion being a mother and she has daughters. And so the state of the mother um, is reflected in the state of the daughters, right? And so the picture is, you look at the daughters and see how they act and speak and you make a correlation to their mother. And so um, the, the focus here is on the women of Jerusalem. So Isaiah specifically is speaking to the women, but the women reflect the rottenness of their culture. So the daughters of Zion reflect Zion. What is true of the daughters is true of the mother. Verse 16, Yahweh said, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet, therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and Yahweh will lay bare their secret parts. This is explicit, and this is sad. Basically, the picture here is of the women of Judah and Jerusalem flaunting their wealth, flaunting their bodies, and paying for it. The Lord is going to strike with a scab, and then he's going to lay bare their secret parts. He's going to expose them in a shameful, humiliating way. In that day, verse 18, in that day, the day of judgment, the Lord will take away the finery. And now we have this whole list of all these accessories. Okay? Um, anklets and armlets and nose rings and mirrors and all of these things. He's going to take it all away. Verse 24, as we end here. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. It's just ugh, gross, nasty. And instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth and branding, which indicates slavery, instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle and her gates, the gates of Zion, the gates of Jerusalem, shall lament and mourn empty. She shall, shall sit on the ground. The, the interplay of the, the feminine picture of Jerusalem and then the actual females of Jerusalem are kind of woven back and forth as they reflect each other here. The picture is that the women are acting the way that they are acting because the culture of Jerusalem had turned from God. And so their actions reflected on their debased culture and God was going to have none of it. 
He was going to slay their men, their warriors. He was going to destroy them. And then chapter 4, verse 1. And seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes only. Let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. The picture is of there's not enough men to go around because they've all been wiped out in battle. And in that time, there was no social security. Um, there was no uh, security net to fall into that the government would take care of you. If you had no man in your life, you were in a tough spot. And so the picture is of one guy walking down the road and seven women flocking to him, basically proposing, um, not out of any romantic picture, but out of survival. Please take me in your house. I won't, you don't need to buy me clothes. I just want to be called by your name. This is how far the judgment of God has brought low his people. Why? So that God can sit in heaven like Zeus or Thor or something and go, ha, 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 see how great I am? You know, lightning bolts. Now, as we saw last week and as we'll see throughout the book of Isaiah, judgment is for a purpose and judgment is for a reason. And God uses judgment. He uses judgment to remind his people of reality. Stop worshiping things you built, things that you made. Listen, this is really easy to see, okay? Some of us worship our technology, don't we? We give undue value and time to our technology. So many of us have an idol in our home, and it's, 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 it's LCD or LED, or it's really big, okay? And it's in the front of our rooms, okay? It's actually in the center of our rooms, right? You define this area by the TV. How long is that TV going to last? Why would you worship it, <laughs> right? I mean, that's the picture here. The picture is why are you going to worship something that's going to break? Or fall apart. Or that you built. That's dumb. Worship something that's not going to break or fall apart or end. This is the picture of what God is doing. He's reminding his people, be humble. Now we know that the Bible does not say, be humble and go, Oh, I'm just an awful person. (laughs) That's not humility. That's not humility at all. Humility actually leads to exaltation, doesn't it? Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. The way up is the way down. The way up is the way down. Later on in Isaiah, thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Where does God dwell? He dwells in the heights of heaven and in the depths of true humility with those who humble themselves. Who's the one that God looks to? He was humble and contrite in spirit. First Peter 5, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud. Pride leads to direct opposition by the God of the universe, and you can't win. You can't. You will lose. Promised. However, there's a good way out. The good way out is to recognize who God is, humble yourself, He'll exalt you. At the proper time, He will exalt you. So many good takeaways here for us that we need to think about. Think about your wealth, your prosperity, your lack of it, your desire for it. It doesn't matter if you don't have it or you do have it. It all works out in the end because we all want it. What are you trusting in? Or maybe the question should be, who are you trusting in? Where is your trust? It should be in Yahweh alone. Because he's the only one that we can actually trust long term. For the duration. 
He is the one that we can trust. He is the one that we put our trust in. This is what the Israelites did. They didn't trust in him. So they tried Chemosh. Let's worship him. Let's worship Molech. How about Baal? Let's worship, let's worship. This is not working. We need to worship this God. They forgot who their God was. They forgot what he did. This is, this is just like us. So let's not, let's, not, let's not accuse the Israelites of being unlike us. Right? I can't believe they walked through the Red Sea and then the next day they're grumbling. Oh, really? Let me evaluate your last week. Let's evaluate my last week. What did you complain about last week? Oh, boo-hoo, you live in Orange County, California. <laughs> right? Let's, let's think of what we complain about. I think John Bessie does this all the time. First world problem, right? First world problems. My TV won't work. Okay? My whole life is thrown out of whack because my team lost. Now, listen, I love sports. I'm a very loyal sports fan. But it is really dumb to have your entire day thrown off because your team lost. It really is. It's just really stupid. Because your team's going to look different in three years anyway. Right? The, po- the point is, that those things are all bad to put your trust in. They're not worthy of your trust. There's only one who is worthy of your trust. The picture of Yahweh, and I'll end with this, the picture of Yahweh and Isaiah is he is not a tribal deity. He is not the God of only of the Israelites. See, Molech was the god of the Ammonites. All the gods of the peoples around Israel had their god, right? The Philistines had Dagon and and the Phoenicians had Baal. But the picture here is that the Mount Zion is lifted up and all the nations stream to this god. See, he's the god who made heaven and earth. He's not just the god of a little tribe over here. He's the god who made the universe. And so he is worthy of our trust and of our praise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that reminds us of where our trust should be. Lord, I would be foolish to think that there is no one in this room who is struggling with placing their trust in somebody else or something else. And Father, your word warns us that you will judge our rebellion and sin. Father, help us to see that what Isaiah hints at and points to is the eventual sending of your son, Jesus, who keeps your law, who never sins, so then he is able to to, to be nailed to a cross, lifted up between heaven and earth, and to bear all of your judgment that was meant for us on his shoulders. Father, it is good news to know that for those who are in Christ, there is therefore no condemnation. There's no condemnation if we're in Christ. So this morning, Lord, I pray you would work in the lives of those who are not in Christ, who do not trust Jesus for salvation, that he died for their sin, that he took it all, and that he rose triumphant from the grave, conquering Satan's sin and death, picturing what one day will happen to us. When judgment comes, we have nothing to fear because Jesus took our judgment from us and gave us his righteousness. That's good news. Father, help us to take that good news from this building. It's easy to believe that here. Help us to take it to work tomorrow and to school and to our neighborhoods and families. Help us to go from this place knowing that you are Yahweh alone. And you are worthy of our trust and our praise. In Jesus' name, amen.